and be over, but it's why. It's always why. Uh, I'll give you an example. This is my seven-year-old son, Ethan. Uh, I was at Costco getting gas in my car, and he said, Dad, why do cars run on gas? Valid question. Fair question. Uh, probably should have just asked, why is gas so expensive? Uh, but why, why do cars run on gas? And I attempted to answer, well, there's a combustible engine. We need the, these little explosions to happen in the engine to move the pistons and that moves the crankshaft that moves the car and trying to give him all of these answers that I really don't even know anything about, but I'm trying to tell him that I know something that I don't really know. So we need this flammable thing that will blow up in the engine to make our car go. And no joke, he just goes, why? And I thought, I have just given you like 12 things. Wh which one why? What, what are we talking about why? I said, Ethan, uh, wh what, are you, which, what are you asking about? And he said, why do they make engines that explode like that? And I said, well, I'm guessing that whoever invented this fine piece of machinery uh, thought that this is the most efficient way to get a car moving. Maybe they tried other things. I don't know. And he said, why? I said, why what? <laughs> what are we talking about? And he said, why don't you know? I said, well, because it's not something that I've really studied. Why? Because I don't really care about it. Like, <laughs> there's other things that I want to study. Why? Because they're cooler, in my opinion. Why? I don't know. Ask Luke. Like, just go somewhere else. Like, I don't know the answers. You've been there. You've been in that situation where it's just why, why, why. And though we grow out of those kinds of questions as we grow into adulthood, I don't think we ever stop asking the question why. It just changes. Why did you allow me to go through this trial? Why why can't I get pregnant? Why am I still single? Why did I not get the job when I was more qualified than the one who got it? It starts young, but we always ask that question. And at a cosmic level, we ask, why is everything around us happening the way that it's happening? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much sorrow? Why is there evil? Why is there pain? And why is it going to get worse in the end? As we're studying this book uh, of Revelation, why is it going to get worse? Why do things get so bad in the end? Well, this morning, I think that John is going to answer all of those questions for us. I think that Jesus, more specifically, answers it through John's pen. And to understand it, we have to take Revelation chapter 12 in little bits. We have to take it in just a little tiny sections. Before we dive into Revelation 12, just a reminder of where we've been. Like I said, we're halfway through the book. Remember, John has been exiled on the island Patmos. He's writing around 90 AD. He was exiled for his faith and preaching uh, Jesus Christ. And he receives this vision. And if you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 19, that's really the, the summary outline of the whole book of Revelation, right? Jesus says to John, Write down the things which you have seen, namely himself, the vision that John received uh, of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the vision that he saw. Write down the things that you've seen. Write down the things that are, that are currently happening in John's day. That's chapter 2 and 3 with the letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And then write down the things which will take place. They haven't yet, but they're going to happen. 
And I would submit to you, they still haven't happened yet, but they're going to happen. This is the end times. This is, according to the book of Daniel, the 70th week that's declared and decreed for the people of Israel. Right now we're in the time of the Gentiles. Right now we're in the time, the church age. But that age will end as the church is raptured. And that will bring about the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, that time of tribulation for seven years that we've been looking at. The, the seven seals, the, the seven trumpets, all of these crazy, chaotic judgments. And I think here at this moment in the book, in the flow of the book, we would be asking ourselves and it would be good to ask ourselves, it would be right to ask ourselves, why are all of these devastating consequences happening in the end times. Why is it happening this way? We just read about the seventh trumpet, which is going to open the door for the seven bold judgments, which are just terrifying. But for us to understand why those judgments need to happen in any meaningful way, we must understand, going all the way back in human history, the conflict, the struggle, the war that's taking place, that will make us understand why those judgments are right, good, necessary, needed. So therefore, chapter 12 is really a sketch of the hidden forces behind this great climax of human history and all of the people that are involved playing a part in that climax. We need Revelation 12 to remind ourselves why these things are taking place. The reality is that the future struggle during this seven-year period of tribulation is merely the outworking of a conflict that began thousands of years ago. So let's look at this together. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. John writes, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. It says there she would be nourished for 1,000 260 days. Let's pray together. Father, it would be very easy to see these symbols and to look at them as arbitrary or even fanciful. It would be very easy to look at this, understand what it means, and then walk away without letting it press deeply into our souls, letting these symbols press deeply into our hearts such that we ask the question, 
So what? What does this mean for my life today? And Father, I pray that you would enable us to see that these three symbols, these three signs have massive implications for how we live our lives right now. Even though they are so many years behind us and then so many years in front of us, these symbols have relevance for us today. But we're not going to see that if your Holy Spirit does not do the work that he loves to do in our hearts of showing us Christ, of making us see and savor Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, please open our eyes to see. We need you. We're so dependent, completely dependent and reliant upon you. We ask that you would work. Give us the gift of illumination. Open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. Unite our hearts now to fear your name. And satisfy our hearts this morning in Christ Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Chapter 12, as I said, is divided into different sections. It's really three main sections. We're going to look at the first section this morning. And then the subsequent sections, Lord willing, in the next few weeks. The first section as you saw, is really divided into three parts. There's a woman, there's a dragon, and there's a child. These three signs tell us why human history is the way that it is. These three signs are going to give us an understanding for why what is happening is happening today and why what's going to happen, as decreed in Revelation, is going to happen the way that it is. So these are absolutely powerful symbols and signs that we need to understand this morning. So let's just take these three signs one at a time. Number one, the woman. The woman in verses one and two. A great sign appeared in heaven. This is the first of seven different signs that John sees. It's a new word. We haven't seen this word before. We've seen actual things before in Revelation. We've seen two real witnesses. It doesn't say a sign of two witnesses. It says two human witnesses, real people. We've seen a real Ark of the Covenant. We've seen a real Temple of God. We've seen real things that didn't have signs attached to them. This is the first time that we're going to see signs. And the reason why is God is going to distill and summarize thousands of years of all of human history into six verses. So how do you do that? If you want to summarize all of human history into six verses, how are we going to do that? How do you accomplish that? Well, you do it by signs. You do it by these symbols. We understand what signs are, right? Signs are pointing us to the real thing. If you see a, a sign for Krispy Kreme donuts, let's say, you know that the donut that's on that sign is not the real donut that you want to eat. It's pointing to a greater reality. Go into the store, enjoy the smell, and eat the donuts, right? We know signs are pointing us to something else. It's a symbol that points to a greater reality. So a great sign appears in heaven, and the first sign is a woman who's clothed with the sun, and the moon is under her feet, and on her head is a crown of 12 stars. This gives us an understanding of who this woman is. There are several different interpretations and opinions about who this woman is. Some say the woman is the church universal. Some say it's the saints of all time. Some say this woman is Mary's, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Jesus's mom. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy, you remember her? She began Christian science. Uh, she said that she was this woman and that the 
child that she's giving birth to was Christian science. So there's different interpretations. It's definitely not that one. Uh, I, I don't think that it's the church universal. I, I don't think that it's uh, the, the mother of Jesus, though I understand why people would get that. I don't think it's the mother of Jesus. Just go all the way down to verse 17. The dragon is enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So if it's talking literal Mary, then it's talking literal Mary's kids and literal Mary's kids being uh, at war with the devil and the devil trying to go and, and destroy her children. So I don't think that's the case because I think what we see in the book of Revelation is the devil attacking a people group, not just the offspring of Mary. I think the clue that we have is exactly what was stated in verse 1. She has the sun as her clothing, the moon under her feet, and on her head is a crown of 12 stars. You can just write it down. Genesis 37. You remember Joseph had a dream in Genesis 37. And when he had that dream, he said, I dreamt and I saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowing down before me. Who was the sun in Joseph's dream? That was his dad, Jacob. Who was the, who was the moon? That was his mom, Rachel. And who were the 11 stars? That was his brothers, right? The, his 11 brothers. So this is all Old Testament imagery. It's Old Testament language. The people receiving this book, they are Jewish people, Jewish believers. They're receiving a book that they will understand from a Jewish, Hebrew, Old Testament lens. And so when they hear clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and she's wearing a crown of 12 stars, they would instantly go back to Genesis 37. They'd go back to Joseph and his dream, and they would see, well, this woman is the symbol, the sign, the figurement of Israel. This woman is representing Israel. So you can mark it down. Who's the woman? I believe the woman is Israel. You can also see that this woman is with child. Israel is often pictured in the Old Testament as a mother. Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 2. Israel is also in the Old Testament described as the wife of God. Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 2. And Israel is also described as being with child. Isaiah 26, Isaiah 66, Jeremiah chapter 4. There's so many places in the Old Testament that these descriptive images would bring up in their mind an understanding that God's talking about Israel. She's with child. She cries out, verse 2, being in labor and in pain to give birth. She's in labor, she's in pain. Why? Because she's longing to give the world this child, the Messiah. We, we sing of this labor pains when at Christmas time we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel, Please redeem us. Please hurry up and get here. We're longing for our Messiah. So there's labor. There's, there's pain. There's, there was a promise made in Genesis 3.15 that there's going to be one, a human who's going to show up and is going to be the Messiah to conquer the devil, to crush his head, to do away with the curse and to free us from Satan's tyranny. And the Israelites were longing for that. Second symbol Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. A dragon. This one's a lot easier to understand what it is, because if you drop down to verse 9, the great dragon 
was thrown down. Who's the dragon? The serpent of old who's called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So we're told exactly who this dragon is. It's the devil. So we've got the woman is Israel. The dragon is the devil. He's a red dragon. Red symbolizes uh, bloodshed. Red symbolizes the, the murder, uh, the murderous nature of who Satan is. And by the way, these things aren't arbitrary, right? A lot of people, when we study Revelation, they say, well, you're just making these things up. I'm not making it up. I'm, I, I read that it's a sign, and so therefore I know that it's not a very specific literal issue. It's a symbol of something that's literal. And when I see that there aren't signs, I take that literally at face value. So this is the way that we study through the book of Revelation. Uh, just like the red horse. Remember, we saw the red horse. Why these different colors? They're symbols to help us understand the nature of the judgment that was taking place. And so this dragon, this dragon is the devil himself. And the dragon's going to play an enormous role from chapter 12, uh, really all the way through the end of the book. He's seen 12 times uh, from chapter 12 on. This section of scripture is going to highlight his activity and his desire to fight against our God. And that's why God's going to send the judgment that he sends in the time of tribulation. There's a fancy word that we use in theology to talk about what is happening in this section of scripture. It's called recapitulation. We're going back and we're seeing the exact same events that have already been described for us, but we're seeing them from a different vantage point. We've seen them from heaven's vantage point. And now we're going back and we're going to see this all from the devil's vantage point. He has seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Again, for us, we look at that and we say, what does that mean? If you have an understanding of the Old Testament, if you were to go back to uh, Daniel chapter uh, 9, you go back to Daniel 9, you go back to Daniel 7, you go back to Daniel 10, all over the place, this imagery is used, these horns, these crowns, they're used to represent nations and kingdoms. You can just write down Daniel chapter 7, verses 20 through 24. These seven heads, these seven crowns, these seven horns, they're not new. They were seen in Daniel chapter 7, and they are seen as nations, political entities that the devil's going to use to bring about his purposes. The seven heads in verse 3 are seven kingdoms that the devil's used all along the way. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the kingdom of the Antichrist yet to come. That final kingdom that the Antichrist will rule over is a kingdom involving uh, ten different nations. That's why, in verse 3, the seven heads have ten horns, representing ten different nations that are going to be used by the Antichrist to bring about this one-world system of government, of control, of being used by the devil to bring about his purposes in the end times. Verse 4, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. Again, straight from the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 8, verse 10 that a host of heaven, that, that are angels, that are stars are representative of angels, were swept away, were taken away. A third of the angels were taken away by the devil himself before creation, before we were even made. And we don't know when this happened. We don't know when the devil took a third of the angels with him. But we know that it happened sometime before Adam and Eve showed up because... What happens then is Satan had fallen in the Garden of Eden to tempt and to woo to himself Adam and Eve. 
A third of the angels fell with the devil. Remember in Revelation chapter 9, verse 16, that there were 200 million demons that were released into the world? So if a third of the angels fell, mathematically we would know that if there were 200 million demons, and that's all there were, if that's only how many demons there are in the world, that means we have at least 400 million good angels. But the 200 million bad angels, the demons, that was representative of a tiny portion of all of the demons in the world. We're talking about millions and millions, if not billions, of angelic beings. And as it were, if we go all the way back to Satan standing before God before Satan fell, Satan says, I'm better than you. I, I could beat you. I deserve the praise. I deserve the glory. God says, no. And he says, uh, Lucifer says, I, I think I've got people that are with me on this. And a third of the angels say, yeah, we think Satan's better than God. And God casts them out of heaven. And so his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, these angels that turn into demons and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So the devil then stands before Israel, who's about to give birth to the Messiah, who's about to bring about the Messiah, and he wants to devour the Messiah, the child. And that leads us to number three, the third sign. So we see the woman who is Israel, the dragon who is the devil, and then number three, the child, verse five and six, the child. Again, common imagery used in the Old Testament to speak of the Messiah. Isaiah 66, Micah chapter four, verse 10, Micah chapter five, verse three. There's imagery used to speak of this Messiah who's going to be born as a child, going to be raised in your midst. And the devil desires to devour him immediately. Verse five, she gives birth to the son a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2 language. This is the language of the Messiah, of the Christ, of the anointed one. This is the one who's going to come and bring peace. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So the devil wants to devour the child, but the child survives. The child lives. Think about how many times Satan tried to make it so that Jesus could not be born. Think about how many times we could do a, an entire Bible study just on this issue. Let me give you just a couple. Let's go all the way back to Genesis 4. Genesis 4, the devil inspires, if you will, Satan. Or the, Satan uses Cain to go after Abel and try to murder Abel. Why does Satan want Cain to kill Abel? Why does the devil want that to happen? So he's a murderer from the beginning. He hates humanity. But he also knows the promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman is going to bring about someone who's going to crush the serpent's head. So if I can get rid of the seed of the woman, I can get rid of the promised Messiah. The Messiah can't be born. Let's kill Abel. And let's let Cain flee, and in his guilt, maybe, maybe he'll kill himself, or maybe he'll do something terrible. Maybe somebody will kill him. Maybe the whole world will kill themselves, and there's no chance that the Messiah will be born. His plan doesn't work, so Genesis 6 he decides to send those 200 million demons into the world, the ones that were locked up in prison for having relationships, physical intimacy with women to bring about this strange line of this hybrid, demonic, half-demonic, half-human people. What is Satan doing there? He's trying to destroy humanity by bringing about this crazy, weird lineage of the Nephilim. 
He just wants to get rid of humanity. Genesis 12, there's uh, an attempt to defile Sarah. You remember Abram and Sarah go to Egypt. If we can get Sarah out of the mix, if we can kill her before she gives birth to Isaac. Rebecca tries to uh, cheat Esau out of his birthright. What's going on there? There's so many things that are going on there. One of them is maybe we can get the lineage that God had promised through, through Abraham in Genesis 12, through Jacob. Maybe we can get that lineage to turn over. Maybe we can make it such that the Messiah promised of these people can't happen, can't be born. What about Exodus chapter 1? The murder of all of the male children that were born in Egypt. What's happening there? Pharaoh is being raised up to try, by the motivating power of Satan, to try and exterminate the Jewish people so that Jesus would not be born, the Messiah would not be born. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 18? Saul gets angry at David, mad all of a sudden. Remember, the Bible says he had an evil spirit. That's why he's angry. And he takes a spear and he tries to pin David to the wall with his spear. You remember that? What's happening there? Yes, Saul is angry, but if Saul can kill David, then the lineage of the Davidic covenant will be done. Satan is scattered all throughout the pages of the Bible trying to kill the Hebrews, trying to take away the lineage of the Messiah. Here's one that I love that very few people ever talk about. 2 Kings chapter 11 and 2 Chronicles chapter 22. Athaliah, she's a queen. And there's just one verse about what she wants to do. And it literally says, Queen Athaliah wanted to destroy the entire line of Judah and of David. And only one person survives. The little boy king, Joash. Only one person survives. And God says, I can use the one. I only need one. She tried to kill everyone, and she does kill everyone except for the one boy that God preserves to carry on the lineage of the Messiah. What about Esther, chapter 3 through 9? Haman trying to kill the Jews. What about even all of the attempts in Judaism in the Old Testament when they would bow down and worship the god Molech? Remember what Molech demanded as sacrifice? Take your newly born babies and pass them through the fire is the way the Old Testament describes it. Euphemism for throwing them into a burning furnace and letting them die being burned alive. What's happening there? What's happening? It's the devil desperately trying to kill the Jews, trying to kill the lineage of the Messiah, trying to make it such that Jesus cannot show up and be born to save us. John chapter 8, verse 44, the devil has been a murderer from the beginning. Think about Jesus' life. Obviously, the crucifixion, the devil's trying to kill Jesus and kill him in a good and dead way where he will not rise from the dead. Because if he can kill Jesus and make him stay dead, then we are all still in our sins. Think about the temptations. Think about all of the things that happened in Jesus' life that the devil attempted to get Jesus to go off course. I say all of this to say this. My my heart breaks for what's happened in the past for our Jewish friends. But how unbelievable is it that God protected them, that God saved them, 
that God brought them to a place where they're still alive today. That's crazy that they're still around. There is no reason for the Jewish people to still be around today. How many Jebusites do you know? How many friends are Hittites in your friend group? How many Amalekites joined your Bible study last week? None of those people exist. But the Jews do. Look at what God did through human history to ensure that you would have a Savior. Look at what God did throughout all of human history to ensure that your Messiah would be born. I was getting my car fixed recently, a few months ago, and I was talking to this very, very nice Jewish man. We were talking about when I had lived in Israel and Kiryat Yarim and, and how much I loved uh, my time in Israel. He was born here, but he had traveled to Israel, and so we just connected, talking about everything Jewish. It was amazing. He had recently been married, and, and I asked him, uh, is your wife Jewish? And he said, no. And I asked him, you know, can I, can I ask, I, I don't know if this is the case, but is that looked down upon in your communities, in your circles? Are you supposed to marry a Jewish person if you're Jewish? I, I would have thought so. How does that work? And he said, yes, my parents, you know, they had to get over the fact that I wasn't marrying a Jewish person, but they did, and we love each other, and they're fine. And I said, why is it, why is it the case that that is the, the custom in Judaism today? And he told me it's because we have been intermarrying with so many other ethnicities that the true Jewish lineage is really dying out. And he said this. He said, in fact, studies have shown that in about 60 years, the true bloodline of Judaism will be no more. Jews as we know them will be no more. And I just thought, you don't even know that your God has promised that you will never leave the face of the earth. You will always be a people before his precious possession and name. You will always exist. In fact, the, the reality of the existence of Jews today, I read an author who was a Jew herself who became an atheist because she did not believe in God. She was tackling the problems of evil through the Holocaust. And as she was going through her book to tackle the problem of evil in the Holocaust, as she was doing research for it, she ended up getting saved. And the reason she got saved is she said, there's no reason the Jewish people should exist. Look at how many times the Jews have been targeted by so many people through the ages, and they're still alive. The only answer to that, for that, in her mind was, God kept us alive. He did exactly what he promised to do. When she got saved, she believed in Jesus as her Messiah. So this boy, this child, verse 5, despite all the efforts of Satan, is born. Think of Herod, when the devil inspires Herod to kill all the, ma the male babies, uh, two years and under, trying to kill them. Make sure that they are dead. Again, an attempt of the devil to thwart God's purposes and plans. But the devil can't destroy Jesus. And so, middle of verse 5, her child is caught up to God and to his throne. I believe that that refers to the ascension. 
Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, the devil tried to attack him. It failed. On the cross, the devil tried to kill him and make him so dead that there was no way he could come back from the dead. He failed. He rises from the dead. Jesus rises from the dead. He ascends 40 days later to the right hand of the Father, and the devil can't touch our Savior. But the devil can touch you and me. Now he redirects his anger, his wrath at you and at me. Satan has no more access to harm Jesus. He has access to talk to Jesus, but no access to harm him. So he goes after Jesus' followers. Specifically, he goes after those from whom the Messiah was born. Verse 6, the woman fled. This obviously takes us to the future. There's a big time gap between verses 5 and verse 6. We see the ascension in verse 5, and then in verse 6, we're talking about the end times. The woman flees into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That's, that's the three-and-a-half-year period. That's the back half of that tribulation of seven years. That's the back half of Daniel's 70th week. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. When the abomination of desolation happens by the Antichrist at the midway point of the tribulation, that's the point at which he breaks his covenant with Israel. He breaks the, pre the peace treaty with Israel. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, Israel's going to be on the run at that point. Remember, he says, it's not going to be good if you're pregnant or if you're nursing. You're not going to be able to run as fast. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. That's what's happening here. The fleeing, the running away as fast as you can from the devil inspiring the Antichrist to go after these Jews and kill them. And God in his grace, just as he has protected them all throughout eternity or history, human history past, he's going to protect them in the future. He has a place prepared by God himself for them. You know the only other place where that phrase is used in the Bible, a place prepared, is in John 14, verses 2 and 3, where Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm preparing a place for you. God's done the work to protect his people. Zechariah 11, verse uh, chapter 11 through chapter 13 talks about Israel fleeing into the wilderness and then getting saved as they're there. God's going to protect his people, nourish them. We're going to see in a very supernatural, miraculous way. So, three signs. The woman who is Israel, the dragon who is Satan, and the child who is the Messiah. This is the, the war that's been going on for all of human history. So what? We look at this and we say, okay, now we know what this means. But what does it really mean for us? We know what it means, but what does that meaning mean for us? And I want to end our time by asking three questions of your soul this morning. I want you to write these three questions down. I want you to ask these questions in your own mind, your own heart. I want you to talk to your spouse about them, talk to your kids about them, talk to your friends about them. I want these questions to reverberate in our minds and our hearts as we leave this place this morning. Number one, question number one, do you believe that you are a soldier in a war? Do you believe that you are a soldier in a war? We have just read that all the way back at the beginning of creation, the devil began a war with God. And you and I are inside of that war 
as soldiers fighting for one side or the other? Do you believe that you're in a war? Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, we don't fight against flesh and blood. That's exactly what's being said here. These are demonic powers, demonic influences. This is the devil himself. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against spiritual forces. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, we need to fight the good fight of faith. Are you fighting? Are you fighting? John Piper says it this way, until you believe that life is war, that the stakes are your very soul, you will probably just play at Christianity with no blood earnestness and no vigilance and no passion and no wartime mindset. I wonder if that's you this morning. Are you playing at Christianity? Piper goes on, if that is where you are this morning, your position is very precarious. The enemy has lulled you into sleep or into a peacetime mentality as if nothing serious is at stake. And God, in his great mercy, has you here this morning and had this sermon appointed to wake you up and to put you on a wartime footing. Do you believe and do you functionally live out the reality that you are in a war right now? You're a soldier in a war fighting. Just think about it. You are in the trenches with bombs going off over your head, bullets whizzing past your head. And so often, how many of us are acting as if we can lay down in that, tr that trench, take our helmet off, put it back down, lay on it as a pillow, and maybe play a couple games on our iPhone? Who cares? There's a war going on, but we'll, we'll be fine. We're, we're safe. No, there's a war. And it's, it's raging over your soul. Do you believe that you're in a war? Question number two, do you see in yourself the very thing that made the devil reject God? Do you, do you see in yourself the very thing that made the devil reject God? What was it that made the devil reject God? We saw the devil rejecting God. We see him in the middle of this passage saying, I'm done, I'm out, I'm falling, and I'm taking people with me. He was cast out of heaven. And he fell. Why did he fall? You remember Isaiah chapter 14, because of his pride in his heart, he fell. Charles Bridges says it this way, pride lifts up the heart against God. It contends for supremacy with him. How unseemly, moreover, is this sin, a creature so utterly dependent, so fearfully guilty, yet so proud in heart. A proud person seeks to glorify himself and not God. A proud person attempts to rob God of the glory that only he is worthy to receive. Pride has many forms, but only one end, and that is self-glorification. Do you see in your own heart the very pride that Satan had in his when he fought against God? John Calvin says we should. John Calvin says, there is no man who does not cherish within himself some idea of his own excellence. All of us think we're pretty okay. All of us think we're doing okay. Pride is so dangerous for a number of reasons, but I just want to give you two reasons why pride is so dangerous. Reason number one it's so dangerous is you are self-deceived in your own pride. You don't even know that you are prideful. Even when I ask the question, 
typically the response would be, yes, I know that I have pride in me. I just don't know where it is. Yes, I have pride, but I haven't seen it lately. It's been lying dormant, and I've been doing okay. I'm the most humble person that I know. Pride is so deceptive that we can be filled with it and not even recognize it. And we are usually way more aware of pride in others than we are in our own hearts. When it comes to evaluating our hearts, we typically cheat, not the ace up the sleeve kind of cheating. This is the subtle self-deceptive form of cheating. We have a more inflated view of ourselves than we should. And if you doubt that, if you struggle to really believe that, can I just point you no further than American Idol? How many people try out for that show that are tone deaf, the worst voices in the world, and yet somehow they think that they can be the next American Idol? Who was not loving enough in their life to say, no, <laughs> this is not your gifting? You're tone deaf. You can't sing. And yet, we see it all the time, an overinflated view of ourselves. Just think about it this way. Let me give you an example. If I gave you a quiz this morning to rate yourself on these issues and whether you are above average in these issues or below average, just our church family, okay? Just the hundred or so of us together this morning, we're going to take a quiz just looking at ourselves, comparing ourselves to others. Are you above average or below average on these issues? Are you above average or below average with your ability to get along with other people? Are you above average or below average compared to everybody else in this room on your honesty? Are you above average or below average on your work ethic? Are you above average or below average on your basic intelligence? Or what about your morality? I think everyone, if we went around and we asked, I think everyone would say, I'm above average. But if everyone's above average, somebody's not being honest, right? We can't all be above average, right? This is, we're comparing ourselves to each other. I don't know much about math, and that's why I lean on Ben all the time. But I know we can't all be above average. <laughs> Something's wrong with that math. We don't believe that we're prideful because we're self-deceived. The second reason why pride is so dangerous is it leads us not only in self-deception and not even know it, but it leads us to compare one another to ourselves. We, it leads us to look at others and compare ourselves to them. And usually not favorably. We, we don't think that comparing ourselves by putting others down and esteeming ourselves is that big of a sin. A great question to ask yourself this morning is, is there a group of Christians that you look at and develop some knee-jerk reaction as you see them doing something where you find disgust or disdain or aversion even? Some circle of Christianity that you say, oh, I'm so glad we're not like them. They're our brothers and sisters. They're our, our family. We can't say, thank God I'm not like them. Remember the Pharisee prayed that, right? To himself, thank you, God, that I am not like that tax collector. I don't know what tempts you to feel superior. I have no idea what kind of people that you're tempted to look down on. But I know you do, because you're human like me. We all have lists, and most of us don't have a clue how dangerous and how foolish comparing ourselves to each other truly is. One pastor says it this way, pride makes you a predator, not a person. 
D.L. Moody said, God sends no one away except those who are full of themselves. So do you see in yourself? We look at this passage and we think, how could the devil have done this? Why would he do this? You and I have the exact same heart problem of pride residing in us that made the devil war against God. Do you know that you're in a war? Do you see pride in your own heart? And then my third and final question for you this morning. Do you cherish Jesus and believe that he is good? Do you cherish Jesus and believe that he is good? See, the reality of the devil is in heaven, the devil says, I'm better than God. But in what way? Clearly, the devil's not better than God in, let's say, beauty, because God is all glorious and the devil's not. Clearly not in omnipotence, in omniscience, in all of those different aspects where God is infinite and eternal and the devil is a created being. So what is it that the devil said, I'm better than you to God? I think we see a picture of it in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, the devil said to Eve, on the day that you eat of it, you will not surely die. God's holding out on you. God doesn't really want you to be happy. God knows what will make you happy, and he's saying you can't do that. He knows what will give you joy, and he's saying you can't do that. He's making rules to kill your fun, follow me, and I can give you the greatest satisfaction in the world. See, the devil thought that he was better than God in the area of satisfaction. I know how to bring true and lasting joy. And he does that with you and with me today. This is the lie that he has been purporting all throughout his years on earth. He's constantly whispering to you and to me, I have a greater happiness than God. God is wanting you to be miserable. God knows how to make you happy, and he's taking joy away from you. But I can give it to you. For those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, you know that Satan's temptations and the sin that we so quickly run to, we know that it does not satisfy the way that God does. Amen? We know that it does not. But we tend to think that the happiness that Satan offers, yes, it's not the best, but it's not that bad. It's second best. It's kind of a fake happiness. It's not the real happiness that we have in Jesus Christ. It's a fake happiness, but that's okay sometimes because sometimes I just want pleasure now. The reality is, Fake happiness, the fake happiness that the devil offers you is not second best to God's joy. The fake happiness that the devil's offering you is at war with God's joy. It's at war. Sin is at war with God's joy and God's satisfaction. God's saying, here's everything. I have it all for you, and I want you to be satisfied in me. And the devil says, no, he doesn't. I have something better for you. And we know intellectually, we absolutely know logically, we know biblically that he doesn't have satisfying joy, satisfying pleasure. The devil does not have those things. But when we launch ourselves into sin, we are functionally saying, God, you're kind of a loser. And I want to have fun now. Do you realize how destructive that is to our souls? Can I just ask you this morning, are you satisfied in Jesus? That's why I asked the question, do you cherish him? Do you love him? And do you believe he's good? Because the devil said, I know that he's God, but he's not good. I know he's God, he's king, he's in control, but he's not good. 
And that's the lie that he gives to you and to me. And he gave to Adam and Eve and he gave to everybody. Yes, God's on his throne, but he's a tyrant. And he deserves to be thrown off his throne. Come fight with me. And he's asking you this morning. I absolutely believe that there's angels and demons in this place. He's asking you this morning. Do you believe God's good? Because I don't. He whispers to you and to me. I can give you a thousand reasons why he's not good. Come on, let's study the Bible together. I'll show you why God's not good. And that's why I ask, do you hear a greater whisper from the pages of Scripture with the Holy Spirit wooing your heart this morning and saying, you know you've been living in sin for far too long. You know it doesn't satisfy your souls. You know guilt, you know shame, but you don't know satisfaction. There's been a way made for you today. I plead with you, come to Christ today. Follow him today. And you will have satisfaction beyond anything you could possibly comprehend. Yes, sin is alluring. But it's at war with our God. So if you desire real satisfaction today, come to Christ today. Father, we thank you so much for this section of Revelation. Six verses so powerful in their portrayal of your faithfulness that you are a faithful God who did not allow the Messiah and his lineage to be destroyed. No, you made a promise that he would be born and would crush the serpent's head. And you are faithful. You have also made a promise that at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, that you are good and you do good, that you are all that we need to be satisfied. So, Father, may we find our satisfaction in the Messiah that you sent for us. May we see and savor his beauty. Even now as we sing, may we defiantly rebel against the tyranny of the devil as we sing. And say, Father, I am all yours. And I want to be satisfied by you alone. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. So powerful. Uh, please stand with me. Let's just worship God together. No. 
Let's go back to verse 2 really quick. Let's just sing that together. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing death as cool that may be Christ Jesus it is he Lord Sabbath his name 